Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And let me just tell you that we are excited to be here tonight. Me in particular, I'm excited to preach and be with you. I love God's Word. I love preaching. I love all of you. It is fun to be here and fun to be part of this ministry. And what you just heard from those men is that we want to have... A ministry that doesn't just get together for the sake of being here, but for the sake of growing to be more like Jesus Christ. That is our aim and our goal, is not just to gather and to hang out, but to press one another in our own hearts to be more like Christ. And it is our ambition to do that, not in a way that's awkward or forceful, but in a way that is helpful to you as we seek to establish relationships with you and put opportunities in front of you to apply scripture by going on campus and evangelizing to being in small groups and iron sharpening iron and D groups and all those things um, are coming for you. So uh, David said this, but just know that you're going you're gonna to be, um, each one of you, we, we went through in our staff retreat and put you with a specific person and, uh, and that person will be reaching out to you this week and calling you and saying, hey, I'd love to meet with you and get time with you to go through God's Word together, come on Tuesday night to Radix, uh, be part of this. And so um, we are just excited about that. Those people are praying for you and desire to be part of your life. So I want to encourage you to open yourself up to that, as awkward as it may be for some of you and different for some of you. It is a good thing, and uh, hopefully it's not too spooky. Now, Lucas, it's going to drive me crazy to look at you through this lamp the whole time, so I'm going to put it on the ground, okay? I thought it looked good on you. <laughs> okay, now our staff just got back from a time at Lake Powell, and uh, that is one of the most amazing places. If you've been there, raise your hand. Anybody been there? Yeah, our staff has been there. Okay. <laughs> so it is a, it's a lake in Arizona and Utah. It's about nine hours from here, and it has more shoreline than the entire west coast of the United States. It is a massive lake with a lot of little fingers and arms. I always say it looks like the Grand Canyon with water. That's how big and amazing it is. And we had a great time on a houseboat, with a wakeboard boat and jet skis, doing all sorts of crazy fun things. We learned a few things about different people. Um, We learned that Drew and Courtney can sleep no matter what late into the day. The first day they were there, they were still sleeping at like 10 o'clock. Of course, they drove till 2 o'clock in the morning to get there. But the boat was well underway. They were still sleeping. Um, We learned that Megan is the ultimate tuber out of our entire group. There is no question. As we had tubes slinging around, the the word on the boat was, we've got to get Megan off. It was like six guys and Megan, and they were all fighting to get her off. Uh, We had some pyramids where we had ten people out there at once. It was pretty crazy. Tawny looked the most miserable out of that group. That was okay. She just was sandwiched between a bunch of different people. And then uh, I had a good time. I was jumping off the slide, and I hit my elbow coming down the slide on the back of the houseboat. And I, I kind of came down and hit it like this and went into the water. It lets you about five feet from the top of the water. I went in and thought, ah, oh, that kind of hurt. Like I banged my arm. Right, not a funny bone, but it hurt. And so I climbed back into the boat, went up the stairs to go again. And somebody goes, dude, you're bleeding all over the place. And I went like this, and there was just blood just streaming down. I looked at it. And the fatty tissue and everything inside was coming out through the skin. And it was, it hit perfectly and just split down to the bone. So, anyway, we were too far away to get stitches, but I think it's going to close up all right. It's still a little bit sore. But anyway, we had a, we had a good time. Is that true? Yeah. We spent time talking about the semester. Not enough time praying, but a lot of time in fellowship and around God's word. And we, we had a good time together. So, uh, we we're excited to be here probably more than you are. But uh, we do have a great fall semester planned. Uh, Like I said, it's our aim to see Christ exalted in every one of our lives this semester. And I want to just say this, growth is not always easy. It's not. It requires sometimes for you to get uncomfortable. 
And the Lord uses different tools to grow his children. Sometimes it's as simple as opening your Bible and reading your quiet time or hearing a sermon. It's like the wind blows and the Holy Spirit comes and he, and he convicts you and changes you. And sometimes the Lord uses different circumstances in our lives. And sometimes he has to go through trials and, and harder things in our life. And sometimes it's through a confrontation. Um, and other times it's through taking things away from you or through change in life where it's like all of a sudden this is different and this is tough. And for the first time in a long time, I really need to trust the Lord. And so, so growth isn't always easy. But as Christians, we never stop growing and we never stop pursuing Christ. And there's never a day where we're going to slow down or look to just say, I'm going to cruise now. Like Paul in Philippians 3, we want to press on towards being more like Christ, actively pursuing him. And so that's really our goal this semester. And with that being said, we're going to start a new series tonight that's going to take us through the entire fall and into part of the spring. Um, and it's, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we named, we named this, the, the title you see on those sheets is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And I will just admit to you right off the bat, this, what you'll hear tonight, is not the greatest sermon ever preached. I can assure you that's far from the case. But we will be studying the greatest sermon that has ever been delivered by the mouth of a man or a woman, the greatest things ever spoken happened on, with the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood up and he preached. We find it in the book of Matthew. It's parallels in the book of Luke. And uh, if you're open to Matthew 5, that's where we're going to be tonight. But before we get there and dive into this, I need to give you a little bit of background just to kind of catch you up on the backdrop and kind of the, the, the scenery of this sermon. Is that fair enough? We, we want to jump into verse 3 and dive into the Beatitudes and beyond, but we need to take some steps to understand how we get there because we're skipping four chapters and two verses to get there. So I want to just tell you a, couple, a little story about how we got there. Now, when you look through ancient history and you look into the empires of the, the uh, Middle East of that, of that region of the world, the major world empires, you find that many of them affected the Jewish people. If you go all the way back to the very first world empire, it was who? Anybody? Before him, even? There you go, it was Egypt. The Jews entered Egypt with just Joseph and his family, right? Over time, over the course of 400 years, they multiplied, 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 and Pharaoh forgot about his treaty and his friendship with Joseph, and instead began to enslave the people who were growing like cockroaches all over the place and multiplying like crazy, and he put them as slaves, forcing them to build pyramids and shrines to the Pharaohs. After that, dynasty came another called Assyria. Assyria was a fierce and a brutal people. They would skin their, their victims alive. They had all sorts of horrible torture techniques and different things in, in the brutality. They reigned with the reign of terror. And uh, it was so bad that even Jonah, the prophet of God, when he was called to go and preach salvation to Nineveh, God had promised success in that. What did Jonah say? I don't want to go. I hate them so much for what they've done to my people that I'd rather see them burn than see them repent. So much so that God said at the end of the book, he said there's 120,000 people here who don't know their left hand from their right. And the interpretation of that is what? Children. There's 120,000 kids that are small enough that they can't even tell which is left and which is right. And yet Jonah would have said, I want you to melt and burn them all. That's how much he hated this particular empire for what they did to the people of God. After that, there came the, the nation or the empire of Babylon, 
right, under the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. They had one of the ancient wonders of the world with the gardens that hung from uh, inside the palace that would hang down and they would have water that would come down through these gardens that hung. And as the desert wind blew across, it acted like an air conditioning, um, cooling the palace. And it was a beautiful and incredible place. Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, built a, a, a gold shrine that was some 90 feet tall that he said, all must bow down to worship me. But as the Jews have been taken into captivity yet again, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak and Benny, said no to that, staying true to the one true God. Well, Daniel, as he grew older and older and older, no longer a young man, but being thrown into the, the lion's den as an old man, is there one night when Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, after Nebuchadnezzar, is there having a feast and a party, and all of a sudden they look across and they see what on the wall? They see a hand, just a hand writing and carving into the wall. And it says that the king was so scared that his knees knocked together and his hip joints went slack and there was no strength left in him. And it said, uh, what did it say, Chris? Many, many, techie, something or other. Which means you have, been, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. And it was told that night the kingdom will be taken from you. And he was slain that night as the next empire came in and took over, which was who? Anybody know? That was Persia, the, the, the Medo-Persians, that's right. They came and sacked the cities, and you have kings like Cyrus and Darius and, and Artaxerxes, who eventually, um, although they had the Jews enslaved, would release them in the days of Nehemiah the prophet to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And we talk about you need to have a Bible and a shovel, but in those days they needed to have a what? A shovel and a, and a sword. So they were building the wall inside of 50 days to get it back up, but... The, the key was they needed to be ready for the enemy to come in, so there was a sword right next to their shovels as they worked, which is pretty crazy. And so they rebuilt, rebuilt that wall. But that took us a little bit farther along, and it brings us to uh, the nation or the empire of Macedonia under a man named Philip. King Philip united the, the Macedonian people and eventually gave that empire to his son who was named Alexander. Alexander the... The great. And there was a day where, as a child, Alexander was sitting there, and there was this beautiful black stallion, and no one could tame the stallion and keep it down. Alexander noticed that that the horse was afraid of a shadow. So after talking to his dad and saying, if I can control the animal, can I have it? His dad said, sure. So he figured out to turn the animal to face the light, and they became fast friends, and he got the animal, and his dad said, there will be no kingdom large enough for you, as you will go and conquer the world. And that prophecy actually comes true. So Alexander... Um, unifies the Greeks, allowing the Hellenistic culture, complete with the Greek architecture, the philosophy, and the science will then spread to the rest of the known world. And we have that Greek culture that we still recognize even today. And so after that, here comes big bad Rome, right? Rome is, is signified in the vision of Daniel as the ten toes, right? Made out of, of bronze, right? Or is it, what's it made out of? It's made out of iron and clay. It's made out of something strong. Right? The ten toes of Rome are there. But anyway, so Rome is, is a big, massive monster. One of the greatest empires in history. At its, at its zenith, Rome extended from, from North Africa down below, across Israel, and to the right, even into Western Asia. All the way to the north, it goes through up into Europe, into Germany up top. And then to the left, it goes all the way out past Italy, over to Spain, and even encapsulates the, the British Isles. It was a massive, massive empire. It began as a republic promoting democracy, right? A republic similar to ours. In fact, our, our founding fathers, when they looked to decide how will we establish America, they looked to Rome first 
as the, as the, the place to get inspiration to understand what a democracy should look like, which is pretty cool. So there is Rome starting as, as a republic, but very soon Rome changed, right? As it was a unique and expanding empire, and it had the unique ability to hold on to its people as they would go through different, different countries or different people groups and conquer and spread. You would think that there would be more mutinies and more uprising, but Rome had a really unique way of doing this. They were such a, a, a civilized culture and a unique culture that would come and build roads and create currency and have different things they'd put into the cities that were actually a help to the people there. They would allow the people that were conquered to keep their customs and in some cases to keep their religions mixing with Roman gods. They would take some of theirs, give some away, but allow people to kind of stay where they were so that people wouldn't um, revolt. And therefore they kept, they kept most of those conquered people for sometimes hundreds if not thousands of years which is pretty cool. They even allowed them to become Roman citizens, etc., etc. Now, the democracy, like I was saying, soon gave way to an empire or to a different form as uh, men rose up desiring to lead. And one by one, they began to put the democracy lower and lower and lower and exalt the man higher and higher and higher. And that man ultimately had, had a name, which was the name of Caesar. And, and that was a dictatorship as various Caesars took turns ruling the empire with absolute and total authority. Well, in 63 BC, the Roman emperor Pompey, EY, not II, Pompey with an explosion, but this is different. The Emperor Pompey, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You need to do your, some, some studies here. The Emperor Pompey came south and conquered the land of Palestine, which is where Israel is. So he came south onto this, that side of the Mediterranean and came down and basically um, claimed for Rome all of Palestine, including the people of Israel, thus bringing them under the rule of the Caesars. But because of the distance from Italy and everything else, instead of establishing a rule by the Caesars, they instead put in kings in that area to rule and to dominate that area. And so they, they turned to a family named Herod and the Herods to rule, okay? And we know that this was kind of a puppet regime put in place in that area. But from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Herod was the king in Israel when Jesus was born. You know that, right? He was king. We know who Caesar was because it talks about the, um, the, the census. Thank you very much. So all that's in the early chapters of Matthew and the early chapters of Luke. But Herod himself was a, a pretty wicked man. He was a tyrant who killed anyone who threatened his throne. In fact, he had all the relatives of the previous dynasty executed, including his own wife. He created a new line of nobility that was loyal to him alone, and he even was in charge or influenced the appointment of the high priests, which were basically what the, the, the ruling class in Israel uh, in, in terms of religion. So they were loyal to him. We even see from the book of Matthew that he killed off all the babies, thinking that Christ was a threat to the throne. Right, And so he killed off all the babies to and under so that there would be no competition um, trying to extinguish the life of Christ. Of course, I would say that he was not a good king and the people of Israel suffered under his rule. Their customs and even their religion were disrespected. They were taxed at absorbent rates and they were under the rule of godless Gentiles. But that's not where Israel's problems ended. Okay, There's more than that. You add to the fact that they were under the rule of the Romans and under the rule of Herod that they had spiritual turmoil in the land. Um, the religious structure of the day had serious issues. I would call it dead orthodoxy. 
right? The, the, the religion had changed from being a relationship with God into being a, a set of rules that needed to be followed. And so dead orthodoxy had replaced true passion for God, and many had been led astray into thinking that religious efforts and good works were sufficient to please and honor God. In other words, the, the religion of the Jews was basically an external show, okay? Does that make sense from what we know of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and everything else from, from the New Testament? And uh, like Isaiah 29, 13, listen to this verse. God says this, This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Okay, so their religion came down to tradition and ceremony and duty and obligation and responsibility that they did over and over and over again, and there was no heart. It says there that their heart was far from me. That's Isaiah 29, 13. I hope that will never be said of us. They draw near with their lips, and they sing songs, and they open their Bibles, but their hearts are far from me. The people of Israel had drifted so far from their spiritual moorings that their religion was almost unrecognizable. And so over the years, in an effort to keep the laws given by God, the religious leaders set additional rules to guard the law of God. So you can, you can say this. Moses gave the law in the Old Testament, and they so revered that law that like walking up next to a cliff, if the cliff was to break the law, they said, whoa, we don't want to even get close to breaking the law. So let's take a step back, and we're going to build a fence right there. And that's another, another rule to keep so that we would never actually break the law. And then as years went by, they built another fence so they wouldn't even break that. And then they built another fence and another fence and another fence. And so pretty soon you have hundreds of rules that weren't given by God that people had to keep in order to not break the law that was way down there. So instead of obeying that law, they're doing all these man-made laws in the meantime. And they were being led astray. Is that, you guys following? Does that make sense? The spiritual leaders were then masquerading themselves as charlatans. I mean, they, they were... They were wrong and they were difficult and they didn't understand how to actually please God. Instead of caring for the souls of their people, they actually only cared about their position and their wealth and their power. They used religion as a means for personal and financial gain, exploiting the sacrificial system in the temple to make money. This is why when Jesus went into the temple and they were, the money changers were there, he was so angry because they were charging so much money for people to come in and exchange the, the, the rate into the temple money. They were making all sorts of money, and the high priest and the priest class was making banks, sometimes our equivalent of millions of dollars at the Passover. They were, they were pocketing based on, um, on that trade. Matthew 23 describes them as laying heavy burdens on others, but not lifting a finger to help. They were the blind teaching and leading the blind. And instead of leading people to God, they shut off the kingdom of heaven as they led people to hell with their hypocrisy. They were so good at making themselves look good that they were called whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You are so wicked that outside it's like that girl at school who smiles and she's so nice, but inside she just full of gossip and envy and, and all sorts of strife and etc. I was thinking about this uh, because when I was working at a restaurant uh, up in Malibu, Trace and I were up PCH, there was one way to get in and get out. Uh, it was in Malibu. You had to drive down PCH one road. They would go back and forth. And there was a tunnel that, that changed from PCH onto the 10 freeway. It basically is right at Santa Monica. You know where the pier is there if you guys have ever been there? At 3rd Street, it's right there. And one day I was driving home, and she was in front of me in her car. We weren't married yet. 
And uh, there was an accident, like 11 o'clock midnight, right in front of me on the freeway. And a couple cars spun out, hit each other, and stopped. I pulled over. She pulled way out in front of it on the right. I pulled onto the basically the middle divider on the left. There's a little tiny wall right there, and just enough room for a car to fit. And uh, I went, and I the guy was in his it was a Lexus, black Lexus. It was dark. He blew out his lights. There was no light around. It was pitch black. And uh, and this guy was still sitting in his car. And I'm looking down the freeway at lights coming. And I'm thinking, we got to get out of the car, like get him. And he was dazed, kind of in shock. I grabbed him and pulled him out of his car to get him away, to save him from what was coming, which was the next car coming and smashing in because I couldn't see it. So I get my car, and I think I'm going to help the situation. So I pull my car around and face it the other direction. So it's facing oncoming traffic with the lights on. So now everybody will be able to see, hey, there's lights over here. Go another direction. Well, what I didn't realize was that my lights facing that direction as people were coming this way, they were looking and all they could see was my lights. And so they couldn't see the black car that was parked right next to me. And as they're looking, the people started smashing into that car and creating even a bigger mess. And pretty quickly, the police got there and I got in my car and drove away and didn't tell anybody what I had done. But the reason I bring, the reason I bring that up is because of this. In an effort to help those people, I was shining a light, trying to direct them towards safety, when all along I was leading them closer to destruction, right? I was, I was pushing them into the darkness where they would get wrecked. And the Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. In an effort to help people and to bring them to the light, they had no idea what they were really doing was leading people straight into a trap that would, according to Matthew 23, make them twice as much a son of hell as they were themselves, driving them towards destruction. And that's what these religious leaders were doing. And they were crushing the people financially and spiritually. It was a dead religion they were leading people into that could not save. They had wandered far from the basic commandments of God. And I find it interesting that in Matthew 23, 23, when Jesus is giving the woes to the Pharisees, he says this, they had neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Listen to this, here they are. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. And instead it says that they were they were tithing out of their, their mint and their cumin and all that stuff, which means they were going out to their herb garden like we have right back here, and they were taking 10% of that and giving that to the Lord. That's how, that's how godly they were. They were even tithing beyond just the money they made on their herbs. But they had neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I think this is nothing new. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, you know this verse, is so clear in the Old Testament. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And what is it? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. They had forgotten those things and they were heaping all sorts of of rules on people, majoring on minors and focusing on external works as a means of godliness. But oh, how far from God they had come. And so in a nation, Israel's in a rough place. Economically, times are difficult. Socially, they're oppressed by Herod and the Romans, and spiritually, their hearts are very, very hard. And for 400 years, there had been no prophets. There had been no miracles. There had been no word from God. In fact, you could say that heaven was silent. And things had gone from bad to worse, and many must have felt that God had abandoned them. God had abandoned them. And so it's into this environment that God sends a man named John the Baptist, who I would say is the last of the Old Testament prophets, a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, 
in the womb, he's filled with the Spirit. Talk about election. Yeah, there's a verse for you, right there. He was sent for one purpose, to preach a message of repentance and to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of their Messiah, the King. His job was to announce the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh. Matthew 1.23 calls this man who comes Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And John was getting people ready for this. But Jesus was born of a virgin in Matthew 1.25. He was crowned as a king by the Magi in 2.11, spared by God when all, the, all, all other babies were slaughtered in 2.15, and then he grew up in obscurity in a small town called Nazareth in 2.23. When John the Baptist saw him in John 1.29, he announced just seeing him across the road that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that same day, he was confirmed, Jesus was confirmed by God himself speaking from heaven and declaring Christ to be my son in whom I am well pleased in 3.17. That can't be right. That's Matthew 3.17, sorry. Jesus preached his first sermon in Galilee in the northern part of Israel in 417, and the message was very simple. Here it is. Here was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Something different is coming, and you must turn from your sin to understand that the kingdom comes. And the kingdom comes now because the king has come. Does that make sense? And Christ is there. John preached the same message. Jesus now steps on the scene and says, get ready, it's coming. Repent, for it's here at hand. And in 418, he begins to assemble a team of men calling them to leave their jobs, leave their families, leave their lives, to follow him because it's time to upset the world. His popularity grew so quickly as Matthew 4.23 tells us that he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And so word about him is spreading because he's literally wiping out every form of disease and sickness in Palestine. And people are coming from across the Jordan and from Syria to the east and from the north in Decapolis and from the south in Judea and Jerusalem. And all are swarming as they hear stories of what this man is doing and what he's saying. People want to see and want to know there is a prophet back in town. There is a man who speaks for God, who has the power of God confirmed by the, the miracles that he's performing. And they want to see and they want to hear him. And so they gather and they gather and they gather. And there was no question that this man was sent by God. And the people who were oppressed by Rome and starving for spiritual life could not get enough of what Jesus had to say. And so here he is. And I would argue this is the height of his of his popularity, right at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 5, I would tell you that this is when he is more popular. He has not yet confronted the Pharisees. He has not yet gone to war with them over their wicked ways. He is right now healing, wiping out disease, taking out all demonics, and he's preaching a message of salvation, and people are flocking because of this. The timing in Matthew 5 is divine. It is. This makes sense, right? Because God has come. It is divine. The opportunity is ripe. And the need is great. And Jesus steps on the scene to deliver the greatest sermon ever preached. And so 5-1, the scene is set. And we find ourselves there. And look there with me in verse 1. It says this, when Jesus saw the crowds. Now according to verse, chapter 4, verse 25, there were large crowds. I love the fact that the, the term is plural. It's not just a crowd of people like in this room. There are crowds, multiple. There are large crowds. I would argue there are thousands of people gathering. Thousands of people gathering. And notice the word is plural. I said that. Now, did you know that in, who was it that preached, Francisco? It was George Whitfield, And they said that he preached to a crowd of about 20,000 people. Is that right? 
It's a crazy story. How could somebody without any kind of amplification preach, but they did experiments. I can't remember who it was that, that mapped all this, but if you read his biography, it's in there. But they said this man preached at 20,000. Yeah, it's in Lawson, but somebody from back then. Uh, it was Franklin, wasn't it? I was going to say Thomas Jefferson. But Franklin, anyway, you have to read it. It's a, it's a curious story. But bottom line is there are thousands of people, and there is a way to hear all of this. And I would argue that Christ is not a frail man with a blue and a white tunic and a lamb over his shoulders. He's a husky man who had calluses on his hands, who's a carpenter, and I bet he had a broad chest and he could preach. The man was a preacher, okay? So I'm, I'm back then you had to have a voice. In fact, Charles Spurgeon would say, don't become a preacher if you're slight of build, because back in those days, you, there was no amplification. So if you didn't have a broad chest that he would say could expand and you could project, you're not meant to be a preacher. And he would apologize to his students, but anyway, that's, that's not in the notes. So Jesus sees the crowds here at 425 and 5-1. And there's thousands of people there. And they've come from all over the surrounding regions to hear this modern day prophet and miracle worker. And it says there, I love this, that he saw them. He saw the crowds. He saw them with his eyes. And I have to ask you, what is in that look? What is in the look of the Savior of humanity when he looks out over people and sees crowds? We know from Mark chapter 6, verse 34, that when he saw the crowd there, it says that, that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Here comes the shepherd of Israel. Here comes the one greater than David who would be that great shepherd. In fact, John chapter 10, verse 11 says that he's the good shepherd. And 1 Peter 5, 4 says that he's the chief shepherd. And these were his sheep And anytime you see a vast crowd like this, with this many people, you have to know that there is pain, and there is suffering, and there is sin. In a group this large, I can look out and see pain in some of your eyes, and suffering, and hardship that you're going through, and think about the Lord with His omniscient eye, looking and seeing their condition, and feeling compelled, and overwhelmed with compassion, and He desires to speak with them, and He desires to help them. And I would say this, He saw them there, and He sees you here. And he knows your heart and he knows where you struggle and he sees and feels compassion even for you now. It was for this that he had come to bind up the broken and to heal the hurting and to gather all men to himself in salvation. And so look back in verse 1. It says right there that after he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Seeing how many people were gathered, he knew that he needed to get to a place where they could see and hear him. Going up to elevate truth, he goes to speak. Now, in big groups, we see Christ getting into a boat and pushing off from the shore so he can preach. This time, he retreats farther up onto a mountain where people can hear him. And is it possible? Uh, some commentators see more here. This phrase, he went up on the mountain, is very similar to references in Exodus where Moses went up on the mountain and Moses went up to collect the law of God. And Moses functioned for the people of Israel as the leader, as the redeemer, as the rescuer, even as their savior in some ways. And on the mountain, he received the law of God to give to the people. Now, I want to be careful with this, but here is Jesus, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Savior of of Israel, and he too ascends the mountain and brings the word of God to the people. It's not a new law, but it's an authoritative interpretation of God's existing law. He's coming to say, this is the law, let me tell you what it really means, as he preaches this sermon. It was from a mountain that God first proclaimed his law, and it's on this mountain that Jesus expands on it. And it's on this mountain in the customary fashion that he sits down, the text says. 
and he waits for his disciples to come. And having positioned him in a, in a place that has maximum exposure and the best possible acoustics from which the largest volume of people could gather near, he prepares to speak. And we see that as the disciples gather and sit, the primary audience is not the crowd, but it's who? It's those 12 men and probably a few more of the followers of Christ. Those are the ones to whom he speaks first. They are the primary audience, although the other people get the overflow. The children of God always have the inside track. They, are, they have the Spirit of God. They have the Word of God. They have the understanding that the Spirit brings to them. And so God, even here, Christ is speaking to those, but there's an overflow to, to everyone else. So Christ's comments were directed at his closest followers, which reveals that the sermon was designed for those who had already decided to follow him. So let me say that a different way. The Sermon on the Mount is not so much an evangel evangelistic call um, to repentance, but rather a description of the character and conduct of those who already belong to the kingdom. Let me say that one more time. And this, there's, there's two thoughts on this, but I'm just going to go with this one. The Sermon on the Mount is not an evangelistic call to repentance. Okay? but rather a description of the character and conduct of those who already belong to the kingdom. And I'll explain that in a minute. But look at verse 2. It says here in 5.2, He opened his mouth and began to teach them. I, I love that. And I've never looked at these two verses before. I always jump straight to verse 3. But this is amazing. After 400 years of silence and suffering and issues, God speaks once again. And he opens his mouth and he speaks. This is why John describes Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 14 as the word made flesh, the logos. God communicated through his son as the words. Why Hebrews 1, 1 says that after speaking to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in what? In his son. You could say it's in the language of his son. God has spoken in Christ. So Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is st standing in front of them, God himself, and he is speaking. It says here that he began to teach them. He began to teach them. I like this. Of all the things the son of God could do, he chooses to teach, to impart wisdom, to instruct, to train, to inform, to correct. And the words that fall from his lips are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. They are worth more than gold and silver for they are the very words of God. In his words are blessing and wisdom and light and life. And like a trumpet sounding forth, he speaks boldly and loudly and clearly for all to hear. So different from the normal teachers was this, that at the very end of the sermon, it's, it's bracketed in black letters, right? 1 and 2, 5, 1 and 2, and 7, 28 and 29. At the very end, it says this, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were astonished. They were in disbelief because he was teaching as one having authority, speaking from something he understood and had authority to speak from, and not as their scribes and their Pharisees. This was not another Sunday morning message. This was not another Friday night Bible study. This wasn't a snoozer. I doubt anyone was falling asleep like Eutychus, who Paul's preaching. They got all these candles going, and it's midnight, and Paul chooses not to stop but to press on. And this guy's sitting in the window, still probably trying to stay cool. Got the, the candles going over here, and he's sitting in the window, and what happens? He falls asleep. It says he falls into a deep sleep, and what happens? Right out the window, onto the ground, he dies. Right? And so Paul goes down, and he just lays on top of this guy, and he raises him back to life. And then he goes back in and he preaches all the way until daybreak. I love it. He just keeps going. It's crazy. But this is not like that. This message is electrifying. This was intense. 
It was literally perfect. There was not a wasted word, a perfect economy of words spoken by God himself, the absolute perfect message for the time according to the need of the moment. It was amazing. And so that begs the question at the end of verse 2, what did he say? If, 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 it's at this, if it's at this particular cross-section of history when everything is happening with Rome and with Herod and with the spiritual leaders, what did Christ say? If God is going to come and he's going to speak, what is so important that he's willing to take on human flesh in order to communicate this to his people? Right? Because that's what this is. This is the sermon. This is the moment where he's going to redefine religion. And he's going to redefine all of the mistakes of the Pharisees and teach them the true word of God that they had missed in the Old Testament. And we find the answer to the question, what did he say in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Like I said, this is the greatest sermon ever preached. But if you were to look at the main theme, if we were to rename it differently, it would be this. I would just say that it's kingdom living. Jesus is describing what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. That's what this message is about in a nutshell. What does it mean to be the kingdom, part of the kingdom of God? When the king comes, who is Christ, and he establishes his rule and his authority and his, uh, in his place, as it were, what does it mean to be one of his subjects, to live in his world as part of his kingdom? To be a kingdom citizen. What does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? He's tearing down the religion of the Pharisees, You have heard it said this. The Pharisees said this. But I tell you this over and over and over again. You said this or they say this, but I tell you this. He is resetting the board, re-educating his people, bringing them back to what true religion is. And it's not the dead works promoted by the Pharisaical system, but instead he sets out to show them what the true kingdom living looks like. What does it mean to have a real and authentic relationship with God himself? The message is brilliant. It is simply amazing. It is off the charts, and it keeps getting better. And so very briefly, I just want to walk through it. I'm almost finished, and we're going to be done. Uh, and I just, just to give you the different sections and the breakdowns, this will be really brief. He begins in verse 3 with what we call the Beatitudes. And what do they mean, Chris? I forget what that word means. It's Latin for something. Uh, for blessing. Blessed. It's Latin for blessed, Beatitude. Okay, we'll talk about that next week when I learn what that means. But he says this. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are the persecuted. This, my friends, is the heart attitude of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. You want to know what it looks like in your heart to be a true child of God? Those eight characteristics will tell you everything you need to know. And we're going to look at great detail at each one of those over the next couple of weeks. And i got to tell you, don't miss it. Do not miss the beginning. This is the foundation for the entire message and for the semester. This will rock your socks off. This is an important passage of scripture that we need to examine and see and apply to our lives. And there are promises of blessing with each one of these. Jesus promises, do this and I will give you this. Do this and I will bless you with this. It's not a prosperity gospel, but it is a promise from the lips of Christ that in obedience and following the way that I've designed you to live as part of my kingdom, there will be blessing and incredible things that have come along with that.
And then he moves on to chapter 5, verse 13, to talk about not just our internal relationship to God, but our external relationship to the world. You live like that, there's, you're going to be noticed. You're going to stand out like salt does, and you're going to stand out like light does, being a testimony to those around us, living in a way that showcases the goodness of God in our lives, so that people look at you and say, something's different. And you don't just say, well, I'm just in a good mood. I've got a lot of serotonin in my system. No, you tell them, no, I've got the Spirit of God and Christ in me. And so I'm happy and content and joyful even in my trials, showcasing God and, and, and so that men will look and say, let me glorify God because of how you live. You must serve an amazing God. Following that in 517, Jesus makes it very clear that this is not a new message. This is not something that's different from the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament preached properly and he's going to clarify and he's going to help us to understand it because it's all there in the old testament okay and he's going to clean all of that up he didn't come he says to push the law of god into a corner or to say this wasn't true let me change it he came to fulfill it he came to live the old testament perfectly as an example to show us this is what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen to to be the ultimate example of what it means to live out and to fulfill the law perfectly He moves on from there to correct the wrong thinking that was prevalent in his day. I said it already, but let me say it again. They said, you have heard this, but I say this. You have heard it's okay to hate your enemy. I say to love your enemy. You heard it's okay to to lust after a woman, but as long as you don't commit adultery. But guess what? That's not what the law says. So there is no excuse for hatred. Hatred is murder. There is no excuse for lust. It is adultery. There's no excuse for not keeping your word. There's no excuse for treating your enemies poorly. All of these things are, are different when, you're the, when you are um, a kingdom citizen with Christ. Moving on to chapter 6, he speaks of giving and of prayer and of fasting. Those parts of religion that are too private. They're, they're, they're very private. They're between you and God. Think about prayer and fasting and giving. No one's supposed to know. Jesus even says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. And when you pray, go into the inner closet so nobody sees it. And when you fast, do that in your house and come out with your face washed looking like nothing's going on. Why? Because those are the secret and most private parts of religion. They're not there to be shown to men. As Look at how much money this guy gave, right? I'm going to start giving my money in quarters. So when I put the stuff in, it's just going to go, <laughs> so everybody knows, look at how much money he gave, right? The point is, religion is between you and God, and the God that sees in secret will also reward in secret. And Jesus is teaching us true religion is a relationship between you and God, not for others to see, but it's private. And that will flow out into a life that is spiritual and godly. And God will reward. 619, we see the great battle over treasure, right? The battle over materialism and riches, wealth and possessions. Uh, That versus the eternal heavenly treasure that's so difficult. But like the rich young ruler who looked and said, ah, I'd rather have the temporary. Jesus is going to say, you have a choice to make between the treasures of this world and treasures of heaven. What will you choose? You can serve only one. There is only one master to serve. And he will remind us and help us to see that we must um, see God as our master and recognize that our treasure is in heaven. And when we worry about money and we get concerned with our possessions and our future or about any part of life, chapter 6, verse 25 and following reminds us that we have a faithful father who knows our needs and who cares for us. He tells us to seek first his kingdom and all of these things will be added. If he takes care of the birds, he'll take care of you. 
right? And so we can trust God without being anxious and without worrying. Which brings us to chapter 7 and the topic of judging others and being gracious toward others. Too often we look from a position of superiority, looking down on others as if we're better, but Jesus here helps us that if you're going to be a kingdom citizen, you must treat others the way that you want to be treated. You must love them the way that you want to be loved, and you must treat them the way that God treated you. That's the point, and not to judge those around you. And Jesus helps us to see that that's uncharacteristic of those who are part of the kingdom of God, to look at others and to judge them for who they are. And that brings us to the conclusion in chapter 7, verse 13. To the, and that goes on to the end of the chapter. Having given us clear instruction, like all good preachers, Jesus calls for a verdict. He rains down a decision. You must decide. This must change your life. You cannot stay in the middle. He literally puts a fork in the road and says, choose this way or choose that way. There are only two choices, and we'll spend a lot of time working through this. But listen carefully. You've, you, he calls for movement here, and he puts every person at that fork in the road. There are two choices. There are two gates. There are two roads and there are two destinations. There are two types of trees. There are two kinds of fruits. There are two groups of people who approach the throne on the day of judgment looking for entrance to the kingdom of heaven. There are two foundations upon which we can build our lives. Everything is a choice. Will you go this way or will you go that way? Will you be a kingdom citizen following Christ or will you um, sit in your own religious works trying to earn your way to heaven? Over and over and over again, he's forcing us down one of these roads. And the farther into this we get, the more obvious it should be to each one of us which road that we're on. That's the point. At the end of this, you should know very clearly, am I the wise man building on the rock? Or am I the foolish man building on the sand? And that's Christ's point, is to get you to say, am I really a follower of Christ? Do I exhibit these kingdom characteristics in my life? Or am I just living for myself? And so this semester and the part of next, we're going to be diving in and going deep into this category to see what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen and tear this text apart. And there is good in this for each of us. So, all of that being said, this is going to be a great semester, and I can't wait to dig deeper into this text and to share all of it with you. I love this passage, and I just want to encourage you to do three things in closing um, as we go into this. Three things that you should do every week as part of your daily life, weekly life, and, and these are just encouragements that I think will help you in this. The first is this. I want to encourage you to read these three chapters once a week. Okay, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Take you about 25 minutes. Takes a little, they're long chapters, right? And you've got you to gotta actually work through them because there's a lot of meat there. Read it once a week. And I think you're going to find that this will be a great help to you spiritually. Second, I want to encourage you to pray about what's there. Spend some time praying, Lord, open my eyes to see this. And then number three on this, that, uh, that's part of number two, seek to apply what you're learning to your life. The reason we chose the Sermon on the Mount is very simple. We can get in this college ministry very much talking about theology and wrestling over these heady issues and spend a lot of time debating things that ultimately don't matter. Theology is important, don't get me wrong, but we need to be careful that our hearts are, are saying, Lord, I want to be more holy. I want to be more in love with you. I want to apply scripture to my life and not just expand my brain. And so that's why we chose this text. So I want to encourage you to seek to apply this to your life. Every week, this is going to be like a one-two punch. It's going to come hard because Christ is unrelenting for three straight chapters. Okay? And so we can't walk away going, oh, that was a great message. I'm just, wow, it's cool. I'm going to rate Sean and critique all that. No, we need to walk away as different people because we've met with Christ and he is, he is working in our hearts and changing us. So read, read once a week, pray, and seek to apply this to your life. Okay? Fair? 
All right, 46 minutes. That's too long. I'm done. Let me pray. We're going to sing one more song, and then we are out of here. Father, thank you for a chance to be together tonight in your word. Thank you for such an amazing portion of scripture that we get to study. Thank you for giving it to us and preserving it and for providing an opportunity in which we can read and study and know you through your word. We want to be your children. We want to be kingdom citizens that want to follow you more than anything else in life. And so, Lord, we pray that as we dive into this this semester that you would help us to grow, that your spirit would come, and, and Lord, that, that we would be soft-hearted and open to change. We hold all of our lives with open hands, asking that if there's anything here that needs to be taken away, needs to be stripped from us, that you would do that so that we could be more like Jesus Christ to honor him in all that we do. Thank you for tonight, and Lord, we pray that as we sing this last song that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.